As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, I I pray that uh, you'll be with us on this morning. Uh, We're grateful, I suppose, for an extra hour of rest, but uh, if we took it, but, uh, but on this morning now we come and we've worshipped and we continue to worship. And now our worship takes the form of listening to you, I trust. As this word is read, I pray we hear your voice um, and even in the preaching of your word that your voice comes to us. And your word is blessed in us. So please help us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to uh, John in chapter 11, please. John chapter 11. I want to read 53 verses. I know that's long, and I'll probably stumble a time or two. So forgive me, but, but it, you know this incident in the life of Jesus. This is a familiar one to you, so you, you'll be able to follow. Don't, don't, don't think it's so familiar that you don't have to listen. You can just sort of bounce in every paragraph or so. So it might be helpful to you to follow along in whatever device or book you have there that will help you do that. So John chapter 11, please. Verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Martha who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, (coughs) excuse me, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are not there 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not here or there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am. 
the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men also have kept this man from dying? Well, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. But Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. But when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Well, many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to to death. And then together... The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, what we've been after in these last number of weeks is to understand the identity of this one Jesus. That's the reason that John wrote uh, this particular gospel. He, He says it very clearly, as we noted in chapter 20 and verse 30. John wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to know who Jesus is. He says, these are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he also wants us to know this, to, to realize that by believing in Jesus, of course, then we can have life, real life, abundant life, real eternal life, as he has put it uh, elsewhere. See, that's, that's it, you see. The identity of Jesus, who is he? That's the important question of the ages. Who is this one? Jesus. Uh, John says that Jesus said that he's the bread of life. We, we need him to live. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Without me, you can't live. I'm the light of the world. Without me, you can't see. I'm the door. Without me, you can't enter into life. You can't enter into the kingdom of God. I am the good shepherd, he said. Apart from me, you'll die. You'll wander off and die. But I'm the good shepherd. I'll lead you. I'll protect you. I'll nurture. I'll nourish you. With me, there's good pasture. And, and, and rest. Now, as we've been saying, remember, Jesus isn't saying that, that, that I, I know where the bread is, let me take you there. He isn't saying, I know where there's light, let me take you where it's shining. He isn't saying, I know where the door is, let me, let me take you to that door. He isn't saying, I know where the good shepherd is, I know where there's good. He, he's saying, I am that. I'm the bread. You have to come to me, you see. I, I, I am, he says, the light. You have to come to me and see through me and the light that I am. You have to come to me. I am that door through which you must go. I don't simply know where it is. I am it. And I am the good shepherd. You have to come to me. You see, Jesus is really saying... It's all about me. I'm the one here who is important. And so when we say as Christians that Jesus is the only way and that the Christian faith is the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to have eternal life, the only way to real life, it isn't arrogant on our part. We're not saying we're the way. We're not saying we're the bread. We're not saying we're the light. We're not saying we're the door. We're not saying we're the good shepherd. We're saying he is. We're not boasting in ourselves. We're submitting to him. We're boasting, if you will, in him. He, as he'll say, as we gather next week to take this one up, the way, the truth and the life. There isn't anyone, any other way to the Father except through Him. So, so that's the exclusivity, uh, if you will. It's not arrogance on our part. We're not saying the church is all these things. We're not saying that we're all these things. We're saying that He is. And we're trusting in Him. And when we trust in Him, it means we're throwing aside everything and every other thing and every other way that we might have, we might think of. And we're trusting him. It's an act, really, 
of humility. It's not an act of humility we're proud of. It's an act of humility. We're turning away from ourselves. We're saying we can't. We are not. He is. So that's really the point of all of that. Now, as you know, we've celebrated the 500th anniversary of of the Reformation, this uh, at least date that has been given to us as the date that uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on uh, the door at the Castle Church in Wittenberg. Uh, and, um, and, and, and so one of the ways that we summarize this Reformation is solus Christus, Christ alone. And that's the point here that we've been making from the Gospel of John. That it is salvation, our reconciliation with God, our forgiveness of sins, every blessing from God, life really, eternal life, is through Christ alone. Nothing of ourselves. It's through no one else. If he hasn't done it, if he isn't it, then there isn't an it. <laughs> we, we were lost. As the apostle has said, and if this isn't true, then we above all people on the face of the earth throughout history should be pitied for believing such a thing. If it isn't really true, if he isn't really who he claims to be, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, and now the resurrection of the life. Another way that we've sort of summarized this Reformation period is sola fide, that is by faith. Well, he's saying we must believe it's by faith. And it isn't just saying all these facts are true about Jesus. It's that, of course, we have to believe what's true about him. But it isn't just simply our belief, you see, because it isn't our faith that saves us. It's Christ who saves us. But, But it's faith that receives it. It's faith that receives it. All that Christ is and all that Christ has done. So it's by faith, or through faith, in Christ. Simply faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it, that's the point here. Now, as we've been thinking about these, these, these I am statements of Jesus, we know that he's claiming to be God with us. That was John's very point as he introduced us to this gospel. In the beginning was the word, he says, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him. was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory as of the only son, the father, full of grace and truth. Okay, that's Jesus. We're all about who he is, the identity of Jesus. If he is who he claims to be, the scripture lays out him to be. Then there's life in him and only in him. That's the point of it. Don't miss it. Don't miss that there's really eternal life in him. You say, why not anywhere else? Well, he's the one we need, you see. He's the bread of life. There isn't any other. Why, 
Why would there need to be when he is? You see, just come to him. He's the light of the world. Well, why isn't there any other light? Well, why, if he is, why does there need to be? Come to him. He's the door. Well, if he's the only way, door, into the sheepfold of God, why, isn't there, why does there need to be? <laughs> he's sufficient. He is that. There's no substitute for him. He's unique. He's God with us. But then you might say, okay, we're talking about life here. He's the giver of life, the sustainer of life, and all of that. Well, what about death? We die. I mean, the very truth of the matter is that every one of us, unless Jesus comes first, will die. It's been true throughout the course of history. We, we know it. If we have any observational um, um, expertise at all, we know that people die. You, I, we should be anticipating that very fact that death happens. And so why then, if death happens, can Jesus claim to be life? Can he really make that claim? Can he really make the claim that there's life in him when we observe that we die? Jesus got news of a dear friend of his, a friend that he loved. He got news that his friend was ill, and he heard that news, and he decided not to immediately go to be with his friend Lazarus. Now, if you're reading this event, and for most of us it's impossible to even put ourselves there, but if you're reading about this for the very, very first time, you'd think when verse 1, if you're just reading this along, you've been reading through John's Gospel, you read about the fact that Jesus heals people all the time. He heals people from a distance even. He doesn't even have to go to them. He can heal people from a distance. and He can say, go, and, and, and when you get home, you'll find your servant is, is healed. He heals people that he doesn't even know. It appears. I mean, he just heals people. He's strangers, even they hadn't met them before. But and here's word that comes: the one he loves, he knows, and loves not only Lazarus but his sisters as well. He gets the word that his friend is 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 sick. You would expect him, given all that we've read so far of Jesus, is that he'd either say, "Don't worry about it; he's healed," or that he'd go. He doesn't do either of those. Uh, he decides to stay a couple of more days. And he says this. He says, this illness doesn't lead to death. But we know that Lazarus died, if you kind of listen to the story. You know that he does die, but so Jesus' point is, well, not ultimately, but there's something else involved here. It's, it's for the, the glory of God. You see, he knows, he knows the, the real ultimate purpose of all of this. He knows the purpose of Lazarus' illness and he knows the purpose of Lazarus' death and he knows that the purpose is, as he puts it, um, for, the glory of, for the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that in whatever happens to Lazarus, God is going to show himself. Whatever happens to Lazarus, God is going to show himself. He's going to be glorified. What we'll see in the death of Lazarus is the wisdom of God, the power of God, the love of God. We're going to see God and we're going to see the glory of the Son. We're going to see the glory of Jesus as well. We're going to see the wisdom. We're going to see the power. We're going to see the love of our Lord Jesus uh, 
as well. Now you ask the question, all right, I get it. So, so why doesn't Jesus really go? Well, notice in verse 5, he says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That seems really odd that, 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 that to say he loved him, so he waited. He loved him, so he didn't go. I would think he loved him, so he'd go. He loved him, so he'd heal him. But he, he doesn't do any of that. Why not? Why doesn't he? Because in his love, he knows the very best thing he can do for Mary, Martha, Lazarus is to reveal his glory to them. That's the kindness of God. He doesn't go right away. And you and I would think, well, if he really loved him, he'd go right away. But but he doesn't. He said, no, no, no. There's something that's so valuable. There's something so valuable for them. And I love them so much that I want to have them, I want them to have what's the most valuable of all. And it's going to take a little while. (laughs) It's going to take a little while. Something has to happen before this great blessing can occur. It's just the way that it is. And so I'm going to restrain myself. I'm going to wait because I love them. I'm going to wait a couple of days before I go. And he knew what was going to happen. That, of course, that Lazarus would indeed... uh, would indeed die. I'm thinking when I think these thoughts of Psalm 46. You know the best line of Psalm 46, I suppose, is at the very end, sort of at the end, where where the psalmist writes, Be still and know that I'm God. That's God speaking. Be still and know that I'm God. What's the logic behind that? Being still and knowing that God is God. Because the psalm begins... With anything but a word of stillness to us. It begins by saying this. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, the psalmist is saying, here's, here's what's happening. Everything that you thought was secure isn't. You thought the mountains were going to stay where the mountains are supposed to be, but they just slipped into the ocean. Now, I was just up there in the mountains, and uh, and they were quite, you know, I could take steps on them. They didn't move, you know, it was great. But if I'd have woken up and found myself in the sea, I would have thought, what's happening? If this is happening, what else is happening in the world? I mean, what's going on? I, I thought I thought the mountains were were secure and solid, and now I'm really. And so, when death happens, we get some of those same kinds of thoughts. Here's Lazarus, and he's dying. He's so ill that Mary and Martha think the only way that he's going to be better is if we get Jesus in here, and he doesn't come. And now Lazarus dies. And, 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 and there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, I know, I know, I know, I know, just wait. You're going to see the glory of God. That's why I've waited. The psalmist says, be still. How can he say be still in the midst of that? Notice the next line. Verse 10 of Psalm 46. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is saying, I know. What you think is secure is all falling apart. But don't worry, you'll see my glory. Don't worry, I'm going to exalt myself. 
I'm going to exalt myself even, even though all of this is happening. You're going to see me. And, and, and when you do, then you'll get the greatest gift you could ever have to see the glory of God. So anticipate that and be still. Just relax. Be still and know that I'm God. There's a sense in which we're thinking, you know, God, if you really love me, Jesus, if you really love me, you'd get here right away. <laughs> you would deal with this problem right now. And, and yet we see right here, it's obvious he loved them. I mean, there isn't anyone else that he knew on the face of the earth that, that he would rather bless than Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so he does. And that requires that he waits. That requires that he waits because the great blessing requires that he waits. And he says, don't worry, you'll see my glory. So, so then he comes and, and Martha is summoned and, and, and she knows that the Lord is coming. And so she runs out to meet him. And, and notice the statement that she has for Jesus. Verse 21. Uh, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Now, now I don't think Martha, no one thinks Martha's rebuking Jesus. Like, why didn't you come earlier, buddy? That, that isn't it. Uh, it would be completely out of character for her. It's just in her grief. I mean, wouldn't you say the same? You know, Lord, if, if, if you'd been here... We know that you would have healed him. He wouldn't have died. But you weren't here. You didn't come. And then, and then she says, you know, but I even know now, whatever you ask of God, he'll do. That's a really a difficult expression to know what exactly she meant. You could say, well, maybe she thought that Jesus would raise him from the dead. But, but she doesn't give any indication that that was true in anything else that she did. When he said, you know, that he'll rise again, she said, I know he'll rise on the last day. She didn't say, I know you can raise him up now. And even when Jesus went to the tomb and said, open the tomb, she said, whoa, I don't think you want to do that, you know. Uh, so so, so uh, we don't, I, I honestly don't exactly know what she meant by that, other than it was a statement of some faith that she, that she had. But this expression, Lord... If you had come, my brother would not have died. Isn't that one that we say, Lord, why didn't you come? Why didn't you come before I made that decision? I mean, I made this decision. Where were you in the midst of that? Because look, how it's really turned out badly. Lord, where were you when I made that turn? Why, why weren't you here with me when I made that turn? Because I crashed. Right? Lord, where, why didn't you come when I chose that major? Why, why didn't you come when I went into that room and there was danger in that room for me? Something bad happened to me in that room. Why, why weren't you there? And that bad thing happened to me. Why didn't you come when I said yes to that marriage proposal? <laughs> now look at my life. Why weren't you? Why weren't you there? Uh, Jesus uh, 
interacts then with Martha about, about that. And he tells her who he is. He gives her truth in the midst of that, in the midst of her grief, in the midst of her confusion, in the midst of all that. He says to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I mean, that's the question. But, but, but hear what Jesus is saying. Sometimes we, we hear these expressions, these sentences, we're so accustomed to them that they just kind of go over our head. But the audacity of such a statement, he says, I am, meaning I'm God, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. And, and, and that's an astounding statement. Jesus says, because I am who I am, because I am the one who, who resurrects, the one I am the one who is life. If you trust in me, if you're attached to me, if you're joined together with me, then even though you die, you're going to live. How does he know that? Can we really trust him? If anybody else said that to you, would you believe that person? And then he says this as well. Um, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You get this sense that he says, listen, on the one hand, if you die physically and you believe in me, uh, you'll live, you'll be raised. On the other hand, he says, if you believe in me, you already live. You already have eternal life. And in that sense, you'll never die. You go, but I'll die. He says, I know you'll die. Get my point. You'll still live because you're living now, because you have eternal life now, because this resurrection life is in you now. And so if you die, you'll be raised. If you believe in me, you live now. And that will always be true. That can't be taken from you. And then the question, do you believe this? As he comes to Martha in the midst of her grief with this, with, this, with this truth, and he says, do you believe this? And she says, notice, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming in the, into the world. So she says, yes, I believe you're the Christ, that is, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you're the prophet, you're the priest, uh, you're the king, uh, you're the one who, who's the prophet, so you reveal God to us, you speak truth to us, you're reliable, you're, you're um, the priest, you're the one who intercedes for us, you're the one whose sacrifice is given for us, and you're the king, you're the one who rules and reigns over all things. In our catechism, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we, we deal with who the Christ is. For instance, in the 24th question and answer, The question is, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So he says, he says, do you believe that I'm the Christ, the anointed one, the the one uh, who is the prophet, the one who really does uh, reveal the will of God for your salvation? Then question 25 is, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile to us, to God, and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. As, as our priest, he's the anointed one. He's the one who, who gives himself for us. 
And he reconciles us to God. And she says, I believe that you're the prophet, the priest, and also the king. So question 26 in the catechism says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. In other words, as our king, he subdues us. He captures us first. As our king, he subdues us. And then he rules and defends us. And then he restrains and conquers all our enemies. And he says, do you believe that I'm the Christ? And she says, yeah, I believe you're the Christ. The son of God, God in the flesh, who is coming into the world. In other words, she said, yes, you're the one that's been promised. You're the one that was promised in the very beginning of Genesis. The one who would come in the seat of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. Uh, You're the one that was promised to Abraham, who from his seed would bless all the families of the earth. You're the one who was the flaming pot in the covenant cut with Abraham that said that you'll take the curse of the covenant upon yourself. You're the one who is the prophet uh, promised to the people by Moses when he said that another prophet like me will come. You're the one who is to sit on David's throne in the covenant that you made with David, you see. And you are the promised Christ, Son of God, Messiah, the servant of God who will come and take upon himself the iniquity of us all, as the prophet Isaiah said, I I believe that. So then he goes to Mary. And and, and Mary is in a different situation. And Mary's um, with a group of mourners. And she says the same thing to Jesus as Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, what's fascinating always to me is that Jesus doesn't give Mary the same line. He doesn't say, well, I'm the, I'm the resurrection and the life. Uh, whoever uh, believes in me and, and dies, yet shall he live. And if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. He, he doesn't say that to her. He doesn't give her that truth. He doesn't really say anything to her at all. What he does with her in the midst of death is he enters into her grief and he weeps. And so we see, just as an aside, when death happens, we need to know truth. And we also need to grieve. That's, that's, that's what's true here about Jesus. He grieves with her. He weeps. He sees them weeping. But not only that, notice. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly Troubled. And again in verse 38 it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. Now you can say, well, he was deeply moved, deeply troubled. That's why he was weeping. He was so grief-stricken. But but that expression of being being deeply moved and deeply troubled is, is really an expression of deep agitation. Anger. In fact, it's it's a word that's used of uh, Horses, when they snort, uh, because they, it, it's that kind of a sound. It's, it's not just grieving, but there's a sense of, of anger. B.B. Warfield, a really fabulous theologian, the end of the 19th, early 20th century, um, wrote a wonderful essay entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord. He puts it like this. He said, 
Why did the sight of the wailing Mary and her companions enrage Jesus? Now he wept, he entered the grief with them, but, but there was something else going on in him. He writes, the spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny, as Calvin phrases it. In Mary's grief, he contemplates, still to adopt Calvin's words, the general misery of the whole human race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. Inextinguishable fury seizes him. His whole being is discomposed and perturbed and his heart, if not his lips, cries out for the innumerable dead is my soul disquieted. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and him who has come into the world to destroy, tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words again, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but as indeed is presented throughout the whole narrative, a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for us and with our oppression and under the impulse of these feelings, he has wrought out our redemption. Don't you know that? I mean... I've been, you've been to some, I've been to many gravesides. And, and the emotions there are varied from, from weeping and grief, which is good, and, 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 and we should grieve and weep. But there's also something else also. And there's something else also. It's like, this is wrong. This isn't life. I thought he came to give life. I thought we're to, to live. We fight for life. And, and we're promised and eternal life, and here is death, and there's something that enrages us, and that's a good rage. Jesus had it. And he had it because he knew the enemy. And he was going to deal with the enemy of death. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I've come to deal with death because I am the resurrection and the life. And then he shows it. He shows it. He says, open, open the tomb. Take the stone away. And Martha goes, he's been dead for four days. Now, that four-dayness is important in the sense that for those of that culture, they believed in four days, you're dead, dead. And so that was an unnecessary little point there. It isn't like, oh, he just passed away yesterday, so maybe he's going to be... No, no, he's dead, dead. It's been four days. And she knows that the body begins to decompose, and so it's going to smell. I love, as I read this in the King James Version as a kid, the expression is, he stinketh. Um, and, uh, and, and he's just going to have an odor. He kind of cleaned it up there for our newer translations. But he stinketh, and so, but, but Jesus doesn't mind it. And then he says, the most audacious thing you could ever say. He says, Lazarus, come forth. I mean, I don't want to be discourteous, but, but, but if you were at a burial and someone said that 
of the deceased, you would think they're crazy or so utterly insensitive to the moment. But, but Jesus says it. And Lazarus comes out in, in the, the typical understatement of the scripture. Verse 44, the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, uh, unbind him. Now, this proved that Jesus was the giver of life and in some sense could resurrect. But this isn't the ultimate resurrection. Lazarus would again die. As far as we know. This wasn't his resurrected body, right? As I've said many times, I I suspect the second time he died, the women of the church said, I'm not taking a casserole. Remember what happened the last time? (laughs) But but he's going to die again. So it's not that imperishable body. What he's saying is, this is an illustration. This is proving to you. Who else can do this? I really am the resurrection and the life. I can prove it to you. Uh, just like I could prove to you in the light of the world. I gave this man eyes just so I could prove to you I'm the bread of life. I, I could feed as many people as you can bring to me with almost nothing. So, so I'm the bread of life. So, so don't you get it? This is a sign to you. See where it's pointing. It's pointing to me. And then he would ultimately prove it. The night that he was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me, he'll never die. The same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. If you live and believe in me, you'll never die. How could he say that? How could he say that? He could say that because he knew he came to deal with death. And he knew that death was the result of sin. And thus he came to deal with sin. And the way that he dealt with sin was to die. It's always made me smile. That the result of some who saw Lazarus being raised to believe... The result of others was to go to the Pharisees and say, look what he's done. And for the Pharisees, the religious leaders to say, if this keeps happening, everybody's going to believe in him. So let's kill him. And I'm thinking, you're going to kill the guy who raises the dead. You think that's going to work? Didn't work. Because he's the resurrection and the life. And when he died, It isn't that they took his life. It's that he gave it. And he gave his life, as he said, as a ransom for many. Which means he gave his life so that others could be freed. He gave himself to pay something so that others could be freed. Those who are in bondage to sin and death could be freed. And so when he hung on the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And we asked the question, why would the father forsake the son? Because the father did, the son did nothing to be forsaken. And we realized why he was forsaken. He wasn't forsaken because of his own sin. He was forsaken because he was carrying the guilt of the sins of other sinners. Not himself. And so when the price was paid, then he was free to go. And he rose. And he says, oh, this is the proof of it, you see. I am the resurrection and the life. I died. You died. If you believe in me. And when I died, I dealt with the sin that causes the death. And I rose. And when I rose, you rose. <laughs> so if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. Do you believe this? Solus Christus. Christ alone. I think we do. All what he did and who he is. Sola fide. By faith alone. Do you believe this? That's the question. If you don't believe it, you have to ask the question, where's your hope? You're going to die. Just that's not news to you. You may not like to face it. As Americans, we don't. But it's simply true. I'm not being indelicate. I'm just being truthful. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're going to die. Where's our hope? If there's life, where's our hope? How do we know there's life? Well, Jesus said, there is, and I can show you. I rose. I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you'll live. If you live and believe in me, you'll never die. If you believe in him, and, and to trust him doesn't simply mean, okay, I'll check off all the boxes. I think all these things are true about Jesus and about me. And all. Isn't that as, where am I resting? Where am I resting? Where am I trusting? Is this my life? To know him, to trust him. If it is, you'll never die. Ultimately, you'll live. Let's pray. Father, help us now to believe. Um, if there is unbelief among us, I pray that you, you deal with it. You're the giver of faith. You're the one who overcomes every resistance that we have to you. We're helpless and hopeless in that, and so we trust that we would be granted faith to believe, and we'd know it's real because we really do believe. We go, yes, okay, I really, I do believe. Yes, I believe. That's my hope. Christ alone is my salvation. Christ alone is my only hope. I trust Him. Forsaking all, I take him faith. I believe. I pray that you would set aside this bread and this juice in such a way that we know that we're in the presence of the living Christ. The one who died and has risen. 
And knowing that we're in his presence, we know that if we believe, then we have life in him, eternal life. Enable us to trust. So please, I pray as we come to this table, that you would grant to us assurance of eternal life. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.